Recently, I noticed a leading uh, article on a magazine cover entitled, Seven Steps to Happiness. It intrigued me, so I read it and found, as usual, that I'm convinced there has never been a culture more obsessed with experiencing happiness than ours, and ironically, a culture where so few find it. And then, because I was working on the Beatitudes at the time, I realized Jesus, in his Beatitudes, are actually, is actually offering a similar formula. But rather than calling it seven steps to happiness, I would entitle his Beatitudes, seven steps to real, lasting happiness. Last summer, during morning coffee at a local gathering place in Tahoe, I listened to young adults talk about their lifestyles. And I'm very interested in life out there beyond the uh, cubicle of the church. I want to know what people are thinking, what they believe, what they uh, experience, what they're feeling. And it was interesting to listen to them. Happiness for many, not all in this resort community, but for many is associated with parties, biking, skiing, drugs, sex, booze, and a long list. And it was interesting to hear them reflect about the night before over morning coffee. And then listening deeper, I learned that most of them were planning only to work till ski, ski season, and then they were going to just not work at all and ski all winter. And what impressed me was I never heard any of them talk about life beyond the next six months. And these are young men and women in their 20s, living existentially for the moment and for any happiness that they can grab. Returning to Menlo Park, I realized, obviously, our interests are very different. And then I found, not really. Uh, our common sources of happiness for many here seem to center in travel and work and remodeling and golf and tennis and staying fit in the stock market and early retirement. And none of those things are bad. They're part of life. They're part of God's gifts to us. The, the problem with all of these steps to happiness is that they're deficient. In the magazine article, the problem with what they offered was they're good, but they're not good enough. And that's why we turn back as Christians to Jesus and find, as usual, he surprises us when he talks about happiness or blessedness or joy. You can interject any word you want in there. Uh, and his prescription is, is, is kind of weird because he says, blessed are they that mourn, for then they shall be comforted. They'll find joy and happiness. Let's go on an adventure and really find out what he means and find out how different we as Christians uh, are in our roadmap to happiness than that of the world. So let's ask the question, what does Jesus mean by mourning? Biblically, certainly first and foremost, Jesus means by mourning, mourning over personal sin. James puts it this way, and he, he articulates it very well. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. That doesn't sound like a prescription for happiness. Thinking deeper, mourning over sin is a rare emotion. It isn't on the top of our list of thoughts today. If you think about it, people mourn when the consequences of disobeying God catch up with us. But rarely do we mourn over the fact that we have hurt Jesus by our disobedience. In fact, many in our culture, in increasing numbers, believe there are no divine universal laws applicable to all people. They just don't exist. We all create our own value system. 
So if you don't feel that there are any divine laws to break, how can you feel sorrow over breaking them? And what's more, most people don't even think Jesus is alive. They might believe he existed, but as far as being a living, resurrected savior, a friend with whom you relate, that's nonsense to most people. So I, I, I need us to understand that when we read our Lord's prescription for happiness, he's talking to believers, to those who know him as a living person and as a friend, to those who love him enough to feel great sorrow if we disappoint him by sinning, knowing that he died for our sin on the cross, paying the penalty we deserve. That does something to our heart when we fall back into what killed our best friend. It's sorrow for being foolish enough to think, though we know better as Christians, that we think we can break God's rules and get away with them, believing we're the exception. Now the irony here is that kind of mourning for the Christian who loves Jesus leads to joy, happiness, blessedness. Why? Well, let's, let's trace into it. Uh, it. Mourning leads to repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to a restoration of our relationship with the holy God that sin blocks, gets in the way of. If the seven steps to happiness in the secular magazine, all our attempts at happiness in Menlo Park, are attempts to fill vacuums in the human heart created when God is missing. Much of what the world attempts to accomplish in terms of finding happiness through all these things I've listed, they're not bad, most of them, but they're not enough. And if our relationship with God is blocked or missing, none of those things will give anything but momentary happiness. Deep inside, you see, people who don't know God deep inside know that their happiness, whatever they're using, is really short-term, it's transient. And that's why there's always kind of a cloud hanging over it. For example, deep inside we know the party ends. Uh, the goals that we work so desperately to achieve, they, once they're achieved, they just don't quite cut it. Uh, achievements lose their luster. The satisfaction we expected from our toys and escape mechanisms, well, we have to do more of and we get less back in terms of payoff. And we find that staying fit doesn't keep us immortal. We still age and you know, on goes the list. All of the things we use to bring happiness have a temporary aspect to it and we don't want to think about it, but the fact is it's there. So when Jesus comes along and offers a happiness through a relationship with God, through forgiveness of sin, he's offering something nothing in the world can give, lasting, permanent happiness in the midst of all the coping with life we have to do, and it's a happiness that goes into eternity. There is not one thing that our culture offers as a step to happiness that can compare with what Jesus offers through mourning over sin. You see, his happiness grows richer as the years pass. You know what's even best, I, I don't often go into the, the Greek here, but there's a very important verb tense here. It's a linear tense. It says, blessed are those who mourn, which means literally, blessed are those who continually mourn. Jesus is saying in the life of a Christian, we have a continual process of mourning. Why? Because we continue to sin as long as we live. And the incredible news is we have a very merciful, faithful God who every week when we come to church and unload, he washes the slate, he bathes us, 
We get put back on the, uh, on the track and we go on as if we had never sinned. And that's an incredible source of happiness. Basically, through mourning, repentance and forgiveness, we have an uninterrupted relationship with God. I hope you value that. Jesus wants us to value that more than all the other things on our agenda. And yet, let's be honest, isn't this a, kind of a foreign language in our culture if you think deeply about it? Most believers don't mourn over sin, as I've said. We don't mourn over it until we're caught in its consequences. It's sort of like being aware that smoking is dangerous, but we play around with it, and the fact doesn't really hit home until we or one we love is diagnosed with a lung lesion. Then we know we have a problem. So the challenge I think Jesus is throwing at us in this beatitude is, do we make peace with disobedience, believing we can get away with it, or do we mourn over the presence of sin in our life? Confess it, turn from it. An act that leads, Jesus says, to finding God's comfort because the relationship with our God is restored and we find thus true happiness. That's the dynamic Jesus is laying out in this beatitude. If you remember, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. The Holy Spirit is God coming to us as a parent comforting a child. Maybe he's going to do this for you in worship today. You know you've blown it. Your heart's bleeding over it. And you're frightened. And you wonder, can my relationship with God ever be repaired after what I've done again and again and again? It's sort of like the small child that's disobeyed, needs restoration back into the family, but doesn't know how it's going to get there. And the big dad comes, wraps the child in his arms and says, look, I know what you did and you know what you did, but it's forgiven. Now come back home. Uh, maybe the best illustration of this is from Jesus himself when he went to a dinner party and you recall it's one of my favorite stories this woman off the street a prostitute comes and uh, They're very distinguished guests. They all look good. You know, they're the sort of nice Christian community and this woman comes in and Singles out Jesus and starts kneeling at his feet and washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair His host at the party was angry at Jesus for allowing such a person to touch him but our Lord Lord made an amazing response he says, this woman's tears demonstrates her love for me. And it demonstrates the comfort that she has found by my grace. You see, the woman knew the happiness of intimacy with her Savior that nobody else at the party knew. The ecstasy of forgiveness, cleansing, new beginnings, the restoration of a relationship with God. And these treasures the self-righteous host would never know because he had never mourned over his own sin. Do you want intimacy with Jesus? Be honest with him about your sin and come and weep before him in gratitude for the fact he's forgiven you and given you a new beginning. And that'll give you a heartbeat with Jesus the host didn't have in our story. So maybe this helps us understand a little bit of this very paradoxical word from Jesus about happiness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I won't be true to this text unless now I take you and ask you to shift big gears and we go in an entirely different direction for a moment. Mourning can also take the form of personal grief related to a loss, followed by the comfort that God gives. And maybe this is where you'll plug in this morning. In our second text in Corinthians, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble by the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is one of my favorite passages. 
Every one of us at certain times experiences loss. We mourn over loss of our innocence due to past sins we can't fix. We mourn over the death of a loved one, the death of dreams and hopes, Anita's confession here of the terrible loss she suffered. At such times, we desperately need someone to listen and to share our heartache. We're not looking for advice, we're just looking for someone who will listen while we feel through our grief without trying to fix us, one who will just share and understand our pain without offering us cheap cliches and some agenda of their own. When life falls apart for the Christian, this is what I want every one of you to take home today. When life falls apart, God promises there will be comfort. Last week we received, and I don't believe it was without coincidence, a scroll from a woman who had been teaching two years on mainland China. It was a large, long scroll, all written in Chinese. And on the scroll was today's text about comforting, uh, comforted to be a comfort. And at the end of the scroll, she had put this little subtext. And I think this is the message. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. I think that's absolutely beautiful. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable. He has a much higher purpose. He wants to make us comforters. If you're in some deep valley today, carrying some incredible pain, God doesn't only want to heal you, but he wants to make you a healer of others, which then gives purpose to what you're going through. You see, pain enables us to, to have this language with each other. I've been where you are. Let me come and share your pain. I care. I want you to find the comfort I found when I turned to Jesus for help. That makes us credible. In my own experience with panic attacks, Bell's palsy, divorce, I found the only people who could really understand my pain were those who had gone through a similar struggle. I identify with Anita because she's been there. She's real. For 25 years, my life and ministry were limited by panic attacks. I've told you about them many times. They made me feel different. They made me feel embarrassed. And the only people who could speak my language were those who had had them themselves. But you know, after I've experienced healing, I find through the years, the people that I have been able to minister to most are those who have suffered my afflictions, like panic attacks. Usually when I mention this in a sermon, inevitably next week, some of you who are suffering that way said, at last, maybe someone can speak my language. Can we talk? So if you're in mourning today, if your heart is broken, I want to give you this assurance. Jesus says you will be comforted. And every week I read your prayer cards and I know there's much mourning here. As good as we look inside, some of us are breaking apart over a sick marriage, a wayward child, financial struggles, misery at work, mourning over addictions we can't control or escape, over a loss we can't forget. I'm happy that this was not planned, it just was coincidental with the sermon that we're highlighting the recovery groups this week because one of the great arms of comfort God uses through this church are these recovery groups. Divorce recovery has had so many stories of healing. I've found some of my closest relationships when I've spoken to that group in the past. Watching people come hopeless and find comfort and then gradually start sharing the comfort they found with somebody else who's a stranger at the next meeting, who's walking that same terrible journey. It's absolutely Christianity in action. Now, I don't know how God will bring you comfort today if you're desperately in need of it, but Jesus says he will, and I'm here to tell you that. 
Maybe that's what you came to church to hear. Recently, a tragedy happened in the life of a woman named Jana Alira, who has ministered to our Mothers Together group. She was driving. An accident occurred, and her four-year-old daughter, Lenny, was killed. I, I can't fathom that kind of loss or pain. Upon hearing the news, comfort poured out to this woman from our church family. Just three days ago, she sent this letter. How can I even attempt to thank you for the overwhelming display of love I received from you last week? To my surprise, I found checks and the sweetest words of encouragement I could imagine. I got through two and a half notes and began to sob, the good kind of sobbing, as I felt the Lord's compassion pouring over me with each gift from you. And then she went on to say how these gifts had made it possible for her to pay for the funeral and etc. with her daughter's death. And then she ends the letter. On a light note, when I told Ron about your gifts, he was shocked, blessed, touched, and then a bit bewildered. He asked, "Hun, what did you do with those gals? You were there only one time. And then she concludes, I guess I became one of you. And as you said, when one suffers, we all suffer, suffer in the true love of our Savior, Jana. And then she wrote a song that seems to summarize her letter, Vessel of His Love. When I have been too worn to stand, you have been my strength. When the world has been my enemy, you have been my friend. When the hope I know has been obscured, you've helped me see. And when faith is tried by agony, I see you and believe. You've shared my sorrow. You've made my tears your own. What comfort midst the anguish, knowing I am not alone. You've shared the burdens of my heart, so I've had room for joy. And I pray that I can do the same when the pain is yours. Remember, if you're in pain today, God is going to come to you with his comfort. And then one day you will use that comfort to reach out to someone else. This transaction of love will make you what we're calling this year a contagious Christian. One who's been there and one who can talk the language. It's not wasted, this pain you're going through. Well, we've given you really two challenges to take home today. First, if you're in bondage to some sin, Jesus invites us to repent, turn from it, confess it, seek his power to start again, and in so doing, you will find his comfort and a happiness that you thought what you're doing out in the world would bring but didn't quite give. Jesus will give without regrets, and it never ends. Secondly, if you're mourning over a loss, wait upon God. Tears may tarry for the night. But Jesus says, joy is coming in the morning. And when the comfort comes, keep it as a treasure to be given away to a suffering person that God will surely bring across your pathway. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we marvel at the relevance of your words. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit that in a very skeptical culture helps us to hear them, understand them, and enflesh them. Bless these dear people as we go forth into the world. Heal us of our sin. Heal us of our losses. And help us to become a contagious Christian to share that joy with others. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.